What a message we've had so far through the music that we've sung in praise and honor to our risen King. Easter is Resurrection Day, that's what it's all about. I want you to think for a moment, if you can imagine what that first day was like, that first morning, as that buzz of excitement filled the air. It was obvious that something unusual had taken place that morning, yet no one seemed to really be able to have a handle of it, couldn't get a grip of it. There was a flurry of activity from the very people who were too afraid to be seen or heard after the violent activities of the previous week. Surely something had happened, but what was it? The celebration of the resurrection, beloved, has continued all of these years. Because despite the concerted effort to disprove it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day stands because it has withheld and withstood the scrutiny of one investigation after another. Secular professors of history and archaeology who have set out to disprove the fact of the resurrection have come away with the clear testimony that history is an ally, not an enemy, of the resurrection. If you stop and think about it in terms of today, Jesus was dead on Friday. He was buried, put in a tomb, And on the third day, he rose from the dead. That would be this morning. And I just want to let you know, I don't know where you're at in your life here this morning, but I submit to to you this morning that if Christ can rise from the dead, which he did, you and I can trust him with the problems of our life. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think about Easter or Resurrection Sunday, as we call it. But I like to think about things being full. Full. I remember growing up in a Catholic family. We'd go to Mass Easter morning. It seemed like we were going to Mass for days. <laughs> one after the other. But it was Easter. And it was the first day that we didn't have to do the Lent thing anymore. And for me, that meant I could eat candy. Because I always would give up candy for Lent. This part of our faith, and I would do that, and I'd sneak a couple here and there. But for the most part, I was pretty true to my word. But I remember growing up in that home, and and Easter morning, waking up, running down the stairs, and seeing our dining room table, which was rather large. We had a, six brothers and two sisters in my family, so we had a pretty large dining room table. It was filled with Easter baskets, and in the Easter baskets, they were filled, just top, brimming over with candy. And usually in the middle, there was a big chocolate or peanut butter egg that we had made special. My sister-in-law just went crazy at Easter time and every other holiday, but it it was special at Easter. And I don't know what they were thinking, giving us all this candy, because we must have just been off the hook for days, weeks at a time. But I tell you what, that's what it was all about. And I just remember those, those baskets just being full, overflowing. And it's even true when you think of Church, I remember going to Mass after that and and seeing more people than usual in the Sunday Mass on Resurrection Sunday. Church buildings have a larger crowd usually. Usually the music is fuller. The food that fills our stomach makes us full. After the service, many of the houses were filled with family members as they gathered together to celebrate the risen Lord. It was a day of being filled Yet, Easter also brings with it some things that are empty. Some things that are empty. And when you hear the word empty, I don't know about you, but I think of something that is lacking. Like the time I was driving my motorcycle on 280 and realized my gas was lacking. And pretty soon the engine realized the gas was lacking and... Eventually, I had to call my wife and say, can you come and pick me up? (laughs) I'm out of gas. 
Or maybe when you're done eating a fine meal, as many of us will today, the plate is empty at the end. Maybe you're at the end of the month and you're looking at your checking register and you're going, wow, I still got bills to pay, but the bank account is empty. We think of something that is without when you think of the word empty. So today, as we continue through this study in the book of Romans, we find ourselves in part four of this little mini-series titled, Our New Life in Christ. And if, if there's any truth that is to be conveyed to you today, this morning, is that I want you to understand that through Christ's resurrection, you can have a new life. I would like you to understand that this resurrection morning, that we would consider the subject of understanding the significance of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it happened, big deal. What does it mean to me? We're most likely all familiar with the biblical accounts of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that Jesus, the Son of God, was born. We celebrate Christmas. He was born in human flesh. He lived some, history tells us, 30 plus years here on this earth as a man yet still retaining his full deity as God. He lived a sinless life, the Bible tells us, without blemish, without stain, without sin. Then he submitted and was completely obedient to his Father's will. The Bible says he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And we understand as the Narration goes on that he was buried. But, don't you just love the buts of Scripture? I love the buts of Scripture. But on the third day, Christ rose from the dead. He was completely victorious, beloved, over sin, over death. The Bible tells us that he was seen by over 500 personal people, Personal accounts, personal eyes that set their their eyes on Christ, the risen Lord. And they testified to that fact that Jesus was brought back from the dead. And that's really the cornerstone of our faith, isn't it? If Jesus had gone through everything, even his horrible pain-filled death, yet he did not rise on the third day, it would invalidate the very person he was claiming to be. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. It would invalidate all that if he had not risen from the dead. We would be a people with no hope. We'd be a people with no forgiveness. We'd be a people with no joy. We'd be a people with no ability to have a true and lasting relationship with our Creator God. But most importantly, we would be a people who would still be utterly lost in our sins. And the Bible says that hell would be our final destination for all of eternity. But God. But God raised His Son from the grave on that third day. Just as he promised he would. See, the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead shows us clearly that his work on earth was not only validated by his heavenly Father in heaven, but that it also a, it was an accomplished work. It was something that was complete. At the end of his life, as he hung there on that cross, he uttered three words. It, what? is finished. Praise God he didn't say, I am finished. That's what we would be saying if we were hanging on the cross. Man, I am finished. No, Christ said, it is finished. The work that the Father had given him to die for all the sins of the world, he said, it is finished. And that's the foundational truth of our faith. It's so foundational That the Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul that we're going to read a text of Scripture from Romans today, he wrote this, but he also wrote in 1 Corinthians. And he was once an enemy of Christ. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. 
Before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee. And he was out persecuting Christians. He was an enemy of Christ. But he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He wrote, he wrote this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, Paul writes. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he concludes with verse 20 and he says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, if that is the truth, if that is what we believe, the fact that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, and that truth can transform someone like Saul of Tarsus, who ordered and approved and watched over the persecution and execution of many Christians. You can read the account where Saul was gloriously saved and transformed by the power of the resurrected Christ on his way to persecute more Christians. And he was changed so much that Christ renamed him Paul instead of Saul. One thing I want you to know before we get into our text, I'm going to show you a quick video before we do that. I just want you to know that no matter what your background is, no matter what your background is, no matter where you find yourself here this morning, No matter how far you have run from the arm of God, I want you to understand that his reach is never ending and his forgiveness and his grace never run empty. He desires for you to come to him. He desires for you to turn from your sin, from your selfishness. We were all there. We all understand that. And he calls on you to yield to his will, just like his son did, to yield to his will. And call out to him to be saved this morning. Think if Christ would have been risen from the dead this morning. If we were the first to hear the news. It might go something like this. I pray that that's how you feel this morning. That whether you're old in your faith or not, that there's an excitement in your heart because our Savior has truly risen from the dead. 
If you turn your hearts to God's Word this morning, I want to read for us our text, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. We covered verses 5, 6, and 7 last week, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11 this morning. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, the Scriptures read this, For if we have been united with Him, with Christ, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Let me read that again. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, look at this, we believe that we also Live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And this is the key verse of this text of Scripture, verse 11. So you must, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Last week we began this little study and we talked about what Paul is saying here to summarize it is he's saying living in light of our union with Christ is the key to overcoming sin. If you understand that as a Christian you are united with Christ or as an unbeliever that you can be united with Christ that that gives you victory over sin. To put it another way, you don't live in sin the way you used to live because you aren't the same person you used to be. We looked at a couple points. The first one being this, to overcome sin, we have to know that we are totally identified with Christ in the likeness of his death. And the two subpoints there, we are completely united with Christ in the likeness of his death. We talked about that last week. And that union that we have with our Savior means that our unregenerate life is over. It's buried. We don't need to obey our old sinful nature. It's not there. It's in the grave. The Bible says that we died positionally in Christ so that sin has no jurisdiction over us. We don't have to obey the lusts of our heart anymore. For the first time in our lives, when we come to Christ, we have an option to sin or not to sin. In summary, what Paul is saying here, in Christ, sin's power over us has been broken. And let me tell you, that's because of the resurrection. If Christ had not risen from the dead, sin would still be the reigning power in the world and in our lives. When you come to Christ, you cannot hang on to your sin with one hand while you take hold of Christ with the other hand. That does not work. You must have a distinct break with your old life. The Bible says that as believers, we became united with Christ in His death so that we would no longer be slaves, it says, to sin. As we all were before we came to Christ. So if you claim to be a Christian, and yet you find yourself still a slave of sin or enslaved to sin, at the very least, beloved, you do not understand your new position in Christ. You do not understand that the old man was crucified, it says, with Christ. And Paul would ask you this question in verse 2, chapter 6. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so... Up to this point in our study, we've looked at what it means to be united with Christ in the likeness of his death. And that brings us to our message this morning, understanding the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I said we're going to focus on verses 6 through 11. Now, I want you to understand that this text here, in verse 5... He states a point. And then it's almost, he says, now let me explain what I just said. He puts everything else in parentheses. Verses 6 through 10 are parentheses in Paul's mind. So you could actually, if you wanted to, you could actually read 
verse 5 and 11 together, and it would make perfect sense. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you also must consider, verse 11, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now remember, the first half of verse 5 talked about us being united with Christ in his death. And then verses 6 and 7, he explains what he meant. That's the outline. And we covered that last week. Now the second half of verse 5 says, Certainly we also, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then he says, I need to explain that too. So he does that in verses 8 to 10. And then in verse 11, he kind of gives a summary of the whole truth. So we're going to kind of work our way back through verses 11 through 8. And we're going to start with verse 11. Because it's kind of the capstone of his thought here. And if you don't understand verse 11, you're not going to understand the rest that comes next in the book. But in verse 11, he says... In the ESV, it says, so you also must consider. Some translations say, you must also count, or you must also reckon. That's the word that's used there. Ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to share with you just briefly this morning what that word means. It's logizomai in the original language, in the Greek and it, it's basically related, logizomai is related to the word logos. We know what logos means, right? Logos means what? The word. It means word. It can also mean deed. It can also mean fact. It was used in a couple different ways in the, in the Greek culture. First of all, it was used with buyers and sellers of things. It was used in commercial ways. This word was logizomai, to reckon. And it, it, it had the idea of evaluating an object's worth or reckoning up a project's gain or losses. Some of you who are accountants here, you'll appreciate this. It's a bookkeeping term. That's what it is. I mean, some people enjoy keeping books. Go figure. I don't get it. You know, that's just not, that doesn't float my boat. I don't know. But some people, man, they just love it. They get in there and, boy, everything's got to add up perfectly. And we get kind of, our, in our own English language, we get certain words from this Greek word, logizomai. When you stop and you think about it, we preserve the word in such words as log, when you log something, or log- logistics. If all seen the UPS commercial, you know, we love logistics. Or logarithm. Okay, those three words represent really logizomai. When you think about something that's a log, it refers to a numerical record of a ship or an airplane's progress. I remember when I used to drive a limousine, I used to have to keep log into a book how many hours I was driving. And then you had to take a break. You logged it in. You think of the word logistics. It's, It's really a military term dealing with numbers and movements of troops and supplies. Or you think of the word Logarithm, which is an exponent to which the base number is raised to produce a given number. I had to look that one up. I'm just reading it off the page. Some of you mathematicians, you know, you probably just knew that. I didn't know that, so I had to look that one up. But that, it was used in, in commercial settings. But it was also used, this is kind of interesting, that word logizomai, to, to reckon or to consider, it was also used in the philosophical sense, in the philosophical wor- world. And it was used in the sense of an object or non-emotional reasoning. Now, this is where it gets interesting. You say, what's this got to do with the resurrection? Hang in there. We preserve the meaning of, of that side of the word in our English language by words such as logic or logical. Okay, the common ground in these two uses of the word is that logizomai has to do with reality. It has to do with reality. It has to do with things that are factually true. It has nothing to do with emotion. It has nothing to do with wishful thinking. Nor is it an activity that makes something come to pass or happen. 
It's an acknowledgement of or enacting upon something that is already true or has already happened. When you think about keeping your books, keeping your check register, okay? If you're, if you're balancing your checkbook and you write down in your checkbook, well, I got $100. You better have $100, right? If you're reckoning that down, you better, you better be sure you have $100 in there. You can't just write down whatever you want. I think I want $1,000, you know? That may be what you want, but that's not the reality of it. See, that's the wrong use of making the log or reckoning your checkbook, balancing your checkbook. Better term would be deceiving yourself or others. <laughs> if you think you have more in your check, checking account than you do. It also helps us understand verse 11 to recognize that Logismai has already been used several times here in the book of Romans. And in every time it's been used, it always refers to recognizing something that is factual. Not something that's maybe true, not something that we hope is true, something that is factual. As a matter of fact, it appears 14 times before our text here this morning. And it also recurs in Romans 8 and 9. And we'll see that when we get there. But the chief use of this word has been in chapter 4. Well, we already went through this, but I'll just spare you all the details. But it happens 11 times there. It occurs 11 times there. And Paul is employing it to really show us how our sins have been reckoned to Christ and punished there. And how his righteousness has been kind of credited to us. These aren't just imaginary transactions. These aren't just things, well, you know, you just got to have faith. No, these are things that really happened. Jesus really did die for our sin. He really did suffer for our transgressions. And similarly, his righteousness really has been transferred to our account. So that God accounts us righteous in him. We don't have any righteousness of our own. Our righteousness comes from Christ. And that has a bearing when it comes to verse 11 of our text in Romans chapter 6. Even though he kind of, before this chapter, he tells us that we're to do and certain things that we're supposed to do and certain actions we're supposed to take. But he says it all starts with counting as true what God has already stated for us, what he has already done for us. And this is so critical. Um, you really have to stop and you have to ask yourself as a believer, do you really understand this? Do you get this? Because you can't really go on unless you understand this base truth in your Christian walk. Let me say it this way. The first step in our growth in holiness is counting as true what is, in fact, true. The key to living the Christian life lies in first knowing that Christ has taken us out of Adam and has joined us to Jesus Christ. That we're no longer a subject to the reign of sin and death, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's abounding grace. That's a fundamental truth. You need to understand that. You need to believe that. It's really the secret to a holy life, is believing what God says, understanding who you are in Christ. Now there's certain realities here that Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to understand certain things. He wants us to, to believe as facts certain things. He wants to reckon. He wants us to consider two things. First of all, the first reality is that we're dead to sin. As believers, we're dead to sin. If we are a Christian, if we have put our faith, our trust in Christ, then we are dead to sin. It does not mean that we're immune to sin. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're immune to temptation. It doesn't mean that we will not sin. It means that we are dead to the old life. We can't go back to it. That's the first reality that Paul states here. We looked at that last week. That we died to sin. Verses 3 and 4, he restates it. He says, we're baptized into his death. We're buried with him through baptism into death. When Christian gets baptized a little later on the service here, we're going to 
lower her down into the water. Baptism always means to be immersed. We'll dunk her in the water, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back up, Christian. Don't worry. We'll, we'll bring her back up. Why? Because Christ went into the grave, and he was raised on the third day. It's a picture of our life in Christ. Verse 6, verse 5, he says, we've been united with him in his death. Verse 6, he says, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, again, he talks about being that we died with Christ. All those things are factual for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. They describe something that has happened, just like the sun came up this morning. We're standing up there at the sunrise service, and my iPhone said 645, and I'm waiting for the sun to come up. It was wrong. It was a little late. And all of a sudden, everybody's standing there with their cameras. And I said, it should happen any moment here, you know. And it took a good another three minutes. And all of a sudden, you saw a little pop of a thing over way on the horizon. And then all of a sudden, it just filled the sky. You know, we weren't up there going, hmm, I wonder if it's going to come up today. I don't know. Maybe it won't come up. No, we knew it was going to come up. It's the same idea. All these things are factual of those who are in Christ. And so on the basis of that truth, Paul now tells us to count ourselves or consider ourselves as having died to sin in Christ Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, Consider and keep on constantly and consider and keep constantly before you this truth about yourself. In other words, learn to think of yourself as one who has been delivered from the sin's realm. And this is a a very pivotal text that we have to understand. Now, I want to share with you a couple things that this does not mean. It does not mean, first of all, that it is my duty as a Christian to die to sin. People teach that. Oh, as a Christian, you've got to die to sin. The text has nothing to do with our duty. It is only concerned with the fact that we have already died to sin. We don't have to die again. Secondly, it is not a command for me to die to sin. That's not what it's stating here. How can God tell me to do something that's already been done for me? That wouldn't make sense. Thirdly, it does not mean that I am to reckon that sin as a force in me dead. You know, kind of positive thinking thing. Well, if I just say it's going to be dead, then it'll be dead. It's not saying that. You can't just say that and it's not going to be true. Your words don't have that kind of power. Because sin is a force in me. Though it's a force whose effective power over me has been broken, it's still a force. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. It doesn't mean, fourthly, that sin in me has been eradicated. You know, you've seen the bumper sticker. Christians are not, what? Perfect, just forgiven, right? We're not perfect. Christians don't walk on water. Christians aren't people who never sin or never tempted. No, Christians are saved sinners who struggle with sin all the time, if they're honest. But it's because of the glorious resurrection of Christ that for the first time in our lives, we have the power to overcome that sin. That's why the Bible calls us overcomers. It doesn't mean that sin has been eradicated. Fifthly, it does not mean that I am dead to sin as long as I am in the process of gaining mastery over it. That would make the statement refer to something experiential or experimental. It doesn't refer to that. It refers to a past act. It's something that's already happened. We're dead to sin. And then sixthly, it does not mean that reckoning myself dead to sin makes me dead to sin. (laughs) That's really backwards. What Paul is saying is that because we have died to sin, past tense, we are to count on that. That's the first reality that Paul wants us to understand in verse 11. That's what he says. So you must consider... What do you want us to consider, Paul? Yourselves, first of all, dead to sin. The second one is this. The second reality is that we are to consider ourselves alive to God. Just like we're to consider ourselves dead to sin, we're to consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, that's the only way to really be alive to God, is in Christ Jesus. 
You know, there's a lot of stuff going around today out there in the theological world. Well, you know, you can, you can still be a Muslim or you can be a Buddhist or you can be whatever. You know, I'm sure God understands as long as you have faith. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said very boldly, I, I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, the life. He didn't say, I'm one of many ways. I'm one of many truths. There's many ways to life. He didn't say that. So if you're going to believe in Jesus, and you're going to believe that he's a good teacher, and you're going to believe that he was a good man, then you have to believe that he's the only way. Because that's what he said. So either he was telling the truth, or he was a liar. And the last time I checked, liars weren't good men. Liars weren't good teachers. So it's kind of basic truth. The only way we can be alive to God is through Christ. And that statement completes the parallel there in verse 5, in which Paul says, if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be also be united with him in his resurrection. We need to understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ referred to here in this text is not something that is future. He's not saying that. He's not talking about a future resurrection of believers. He's not talking about the day when our bodies will be risen from the dead if we die before the Lord comes back. No, he's talking about the present reality, the present experiential reality of living in Christ's resurrection life now, today. It tells us that just as we have died to sin... We have to count on that. We have to reckon that. We have to consider that. So we have been made alive in God, to God, in Jesus Christ. And we must count on that also. See, there's a negative side and a positive side. This is the positive side. If you've come today, the negative side was last week. You've come on a great Sunday. You're here for your positive things. Now you say, well, I haven't heard a lot of positive stuff yet. You talk about sin, you talk about this. But you know what? The fact that Christ rose from the dead is positive news because our sins can be forgiven, that our relationship with God can be restored. So secondly, and this is in your outline, to overcome sin, we have to know that you are totally identified with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. To overcome sin... We have to know and believe that in the future, and even today, we share in Christ's resurrection victory over sin. So Paul's command here to consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus really is saying, hey, you know what? Because Christ rose from the dead, you can count on that. You can count on that. We believe that we shall live with Him. It's not pointing there to a future event. It's pointing to something that is a truth right now. That we will one day experience complete victory over sin. That's that's future. But right now we can count on the fact that we've been risen with Christ if we put our faith and trust in Him. Leon Morris puts it this way. Paul is saying that the believer lives with Christ now and that this union will be even more wonderful in the life to come. Now here's how this works when you face temptation. Let's just get down where the the rubber meets the road. Perhaps you're tempted to use drugs or get drunk or escape from the pressures of life somehow, whatever it might be, or you're, you're tempted to go back into sexual immorality in your life, whatever it might be. But you realize that in Christ, you have been crucified to that old corrupt way of life. And you're now identified, you're united with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. His new life, the Bible says, is in you. And someday, you will receive a new resurrected body that cannot sin. Why would you want to sin now? Paul asked that rhetorically in verse 21. What benefit of chapter 6, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of, the outcome of those things is death. 
See, knowing and believing the truth of your present position of sharing in Christ's death and resurrection really helps you break the power of sin in your life each and every day. It's a very practical application. Secondly there, B, he says, to to overcome sin, know that Christ's resurrection represents his complete and final victory over sin and death. Verse 9 in our text kind of gives us the, the reason for this. Verse 9, he says, we know that Christ, we know, Moo calls that a, a, a causal principle. The thought is this, we believe that we will live with Christ because we know that he is now beyond the reach of death. His resurrection signifies that we will never die again. Death is that he will never die again. Death is no longer mastery over him, it says in verse 9. And he says there at the end, he says, death no longer has dominion over him. And then in verse 10, it kind of explains what he just said. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Aren't you glad that when Jesus died on the cross, he died once for all? Aren't you glad that he didn't come out with some salvation plan that said, well, yeah, Jesus kind of covered for your sins up to this point, but, you know, that's, that's his death. But now, if you sin from this point on, you're on your own, and so you've got to go die on a cross. I, I'm glad he didn't do that. I'd already be dead a million times over. So, you know, and we'd all be there with me. I mean, that's just not a good way to go. His victory over sin and death was complete. We don't need to work for our salvation. Do you understand that? We don't need to do religious things somehow thinking that that earns us brownie points with God. That's not how the Bible says it works. That's how we want it to work. So maybe, you know, we'll dust that Bible off once in a while and read it, and because we do, we think, oh, now God's going to bless me. It's ridiculous. He deserves our praise, our worship. It's not a bartering thing with God. His resurrection puts all the terrors of sin and death behind him once and forever. And it says the life he lives, he now lives to God. It doesn't just imply that his life prior to his resurrection was not lived for God. That's not what he's saying. Morris goes on, he explains it this way. His life is beyond the reach of death and every evil. It is a life lived positively in and for the glory of God, no longer with the negative aspect of putting away sin. So the thought there in verses 9 and 10 is that Christ's death and resurrection completely and finally conquer sin and death. John Piper says it this way in one of his books. He explains the benefits of, of this, He says, sin can't enslave a person who is utterly confident and sure and hope-filled in the infinite happiness of life with Christ in the future. Well, let's get to the practical side here. Thirdly, to overcome sin, continually count or continually reckon as true the fact of your being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's what he's saying. He says it three times there. Verse 3, he says, or do you not know? Verse 6, he says, knowing this. Verse 9, he says, knowing that Christ. See, knowing who we are in Christ, beloved, is foundational to living a spiritual life. I, I firmly believe that there are so many Christians that struggle in their spiritual growth because they don't understand who they are in Christ. So we need to continually count ourselves, it says, dead to sin and alive to God. And that's all because of the resurrection. That's all because of Christ rising from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, we wouldn't be here this morning. The the, the truest thing really about you is not what you feel. It's not what you feel, but what God declares to be true. See, we we live in this touchy-feely world today. 
and you know we, we get in this touchy feely mode and you know, well I think you know I think so and so is upset with me and I feel that you know this and oh well I, I feel this and who cares what you feel? You know, I mean, sometimes we have conversations and, well, I don't think, I said, you know what? You know, I'll tell the people, just call them and ask them. Are you upset with me? Get it over with. It's real basic. They can either say no or yes. Well, you are? Okay, why? Deal with it? Great. Okay, are we good? Yeah, we're good. Okay, let's go. But no, we do this stupid email thing back and forth. That you're getting emails back and forth and you're reading between the lines and wondering how they meant this. You know, if, if you're upset with somebody, don't send an email. That's the worst possible thing you could do. You know, I'd say meet them face to face, but if you can't do that, call them on the phone or FaceTime them or do something where you can look into their eyes and see what the intentions are. So many times when you read an email, you can read all sorts of things in there. It's not even there. We just need to really believe that. Victory over sin begins with your mind, how you think. Not how you feel. It's not just a mind game. I'm not saying you just go throughout life telling yourself, okay, I'm just not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. No, it's, it's not positive thinking. I'm not talking about that. He isn't saying visualize yourself as this sinless person. No, he's not saying that. And eventually you'll act that way. You know, go to bed and put the Bible under your pillow and hopefully it'll absorb into your... He's not saying that. He's saying this. This is the fact of who God has made you in Christ. You are no longer in Adam, alive to sin, but dead towards God. Rather, you are now in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to God. Think on that truth. And as you think on that truth, you will act so. So consider it over and over and over as often as you face temptation. Remember, Christ is not in the grave. He rose from the dead. We live in the light of our union with Christ. It's a key to overcoming sin. When she was young, Victoria, the future queen of England, was shielded from the fact that she would be queen one day so that she wouldn't be spoiled. When her family finally did let her discover for herself that she would one day rule as queen, Victoria's response was this, then I will be good. See, her life from that point on was controlled by her future position. She would be the queen, so she acted as a queen should act. See, in the same way, the fact that we are united with Christ in His death to sin and that one day we'll be raised up to life with Him eternally, that should cause us to proclaim that, you know what, then I will live a holy life. I will strive to live a life that's honoring to Christ. Counting on our union with Christ in His death and His resurrection is true the true key to overcoming sin. You can stop and you can ask yourself this, well, what does this being made alive to God and Christ really mean? What changes have taken place? I'm just going to share a few with you. First of all, we've been reconciled to God. In the early chapters of Romans, it was kind of depressing, to be honest. All we talked about was sin and wrath and judgment and death. But God has lifted us out of that kind of downward spiraling sequence by giving us such things as grace and obedience and righteousness and eternal life. Even though we were subject to the wrath of God, but Christ, having risen from the dead, puts us, as we put our faith and trust in Him, in a favorable position before God. Before we were God's enemies, now we are called His friends. There's a new relationship. We're reconciled. We're brought back to our proper relationship with God. Secondly, we become new creatures in Christ. Not only do we have a new relationship between ourselves and God, which is wonderful in and of itself, but we've also become something new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says this, Apostle Paul, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Another way of putting this is to speak of regeneration or being born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. Thirdly, we're also freed from sin's bondage. Before we died to sin, we were made alive and made alive to God. We were sins of our own sinful nature. Sin was ruining us day by day. And even when we could understand that, boy, my life's a mess. I got sin all over the place. And we realized that we understood we couldn't do anything about it. It was something we couldn't just stop doing. Maybe you've said, man, I got to stop drinking. It's killing me. I got to stop smoking. It's killing me. Or, man, I got to be careful of my reputation. This is not good. I've got to control my temper. I've got to curb my spending. But we're not able to do it. And even if we did get some kind of control over maybe that important area of our lives, the general downward destructive drift was unchanged. Not able to deal with sin. See, but being made alive to God, we discover that now we're freed from that destructive bondage. Yeah, we still sin, but not always and not as often. And we know that we don't have to do it. For the first time, we're able not to sin. We can achieve real victory. And then fourthly, we are pressing forward to a sure destiny and new goals. I mean, before we're just trapped in this world by all the time-bound evil horizons, just, you know, working our way up the ladder, only to find it leaning against the wrong wall. But being saved, now we know that our God has a purpose and a plan for us, and that we're destined for an eternal fellowship with God and glory. And we know we're not perfect. We haven't reached it yet. But we echo Paul's words in Philippians, not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself, this is the Apostle Paul saying this, to have taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, listen, he says in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Glorious truth. And the last thing, we, we can no longer be satisfied with this world and its offerings. Before we came to Christ, we were, that's all we were concerned with. The new car, the new house, the new job. Whatever it might be. But now we realize that this world is quickly falling. This world is quickly failing. This world is quickly going by us. And if this world doesn't leave us, leave us one day we will leave this world. And the last time I checked, I've done many funerals. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Just doesn't happen. Everything stays here. All the important things that we think are so important, so pressing on our time. And that's why it's so important to understand that as a church, when we come together and we fellowship, it's important that you participate together as the body of Christ with the rest of the body. It's, you know, I mean, if you're dead or in the hospital, okay. But you know what? In all seriousness, I mean, we have allowed the world to creep into our lives in a way as Christians that it just rules, rules our, our roost. And so, you know, we're in communities early on in America. The church used to be the hub of the community. Everything happened at the church. If there was a town hall, it happened at the church. Every, everybody was at the church all the time. Didn't matter what faith, it was happening at the church. And now we're lucky if the church is even one of the, the, the spokes on the wheel in our lives. Competing amongst all the other things of so-called importance in our lives. 
We're to no longer be satisfied, brothers and sisters, with this world and its offerings. Well, what do you do when you do sin? You have to understand as a Christian, first of all, it's not going to work for you very well. If you're claiming to be a Christian here this morning and you're living in a life of sin and you know it, it's not going to work out for you and you probably already know that sitting here. Secondly, God will stop it. God is very particular about those who put their faith and trust in Him. He's very particular about His children because He loves them. God will stop you from sinning. He has multiple ways of doing it. Either He'll make your life so miserable that you won't enjoy that sin anymore. Or He may end your life. Sounds radical, but that's what the Bible says. Thirdly, if you do return to the life, say you're here this morning, you're claiming to be a Christian, but you're not living for Christ, and you have no desire to live for Christ, I have one word for you. You're not a Christian. You may profess Christ. You may say you're a Christian, but you don't possess Christ. Because the Bible I read says that those who possess Christ are changed. They're transformed. There's something different about them. They don't gravitate toward the world. They gravitate toward Christ. So the good news is basically this. Christ is no longer in the grave. He rose from the dead. And because of that, we have victory over sin and death just like he does. That's how it translates to us. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that you would understand that outside of Christ, there's no hope for you. There's a place called hell that that burns for all eternity. The Bible speaks very clearly of it. I'm not trying to scare you, but in a way I am. Because I love you. I don't want to see you end up in eternity for hell, in hell forever. And neither does God. That's why he gave his son. That's why Christ went to the cross. That's why Christ paid for the sins. That's why Christ was risen on the third day. So that you and I could have victory over that sin that now enslaves us. That we could have forgiveness. That we could experience God's grace. I think of Nehemiah in closing. When we talk to Christians and we say, well, we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Nehemiah was a man in the Old Testament who was rebuilding the, the walls. And there were two opponents that were against him, Samballat and Geshem. And they constantly, while he's trying to rebuild these walls around the city, he really felt that this was what God wanted him to do. And these guys were just always in his face trying to get him away from the task that God called him to do. They invited him to a conference to be held about a day's journey from Jerusalem. They thought, well, we'll get him out of there for a while. At least they'll stop building while he's gone. Maybe they even thought while they had him, maybe they could kidnap him or murder him and the walls would stop the rebuilding and these people would just relax. But Nehemiah refused. And he said this in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3. And Christian, listen to this. He says, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go to your conference. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Later, when the same people tried to frighten him in rumors of a plot against his life, he replied this in verse 11, Should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? Christian, ask yourself this question. Shall I go on sinning so that grace may increase, as Paul asks? If we've died to sin and made alive to God in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian here this morning, then your job is to reckon it so, to count it so. You have to say to yourself over and over again, a person like me, a child of God, has better things to do than to keep on sinning sinning and dishonoring my Lord and Savior. And this is all truth that has been made True to us because of the resurrection. Because Christ rose from the dead. Father, we thank you for these words this morning. I pray, Lord, they wouldn't just be my words. I pray that they would be empowered by your spirit. 
that somehow our hearts would be open to this truth. Lord, we ask that you would just prepare our hearts as we get ready to uh, have Christian come in baptism. And Lord, we pray that you would just, uh, um, as we uh, sing this song in closing, uh, just mold our hearts more and more like you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that they would cry out right now in the quietness of this moment. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I I hear what this man's saying. And yeah, sin is an issue in my life and I can't stop it. I don't know what to do. You need to turn to Christ. You need to go to Christ and say, God, I need help. I need a Savior. I'm drowning in it. If you do that, He will save you. And He will change you. He will transform you. He'll make you a new creature in Christ. I pray that you would pray that prayer this morning. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cry out from the depths of your heart. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Pray that you'd bless the baptism in our song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.